It's great uh, to spend this uh, last session looking at the final, uh, I guess the final arrival in Egypt. I suppose it's the culmination uh, of, yes, it's the culmination of the series, but in a real sense, it's the culmination when we see so many of the ways in which God has been working, so many different strands coming together, and hopefully as we work through this afternoon, what we'll realize is that many of those strands which converge as the story of Joseph is fulfilled in Egypt, they also create for us a tremendous platform, a preparation for what is to come. One of the most important things, I think, when we come to Old Old Testament narrative, uh, the stories in the Old Testament, which is actually, I think it's one of my favorite places in the Bible. I love working through those Old Testament stories. Uh, They are not stories in and of themselves. They are a preparation. They are a journey. They are therefore a reason to take us somewhere, to prepare us for something, to speak to us now, today. I think one of the challenges is how we can make sure that stories like this, which are from thousands of years ago, resound with significance for the lives that we live day by day, that they have something to say about how we step into tomorrow, whether it's driving on holiday, or whether it's going into work, or whether it's going into school, whatever it might be. There is something which the Old Testament narratives speak into, which guides us and prepares us Uh, for our day-to-day lives. This end, climactic finale, is like so many of, well, we've called it Long Lost Family, haven't we? And if you've watched that program, there is that moment where there is this reuniting. And it's filled with emotion. There is generally some sort of significance to a location. It's filled with joy. It's filled with tears. I guess most often it's filled with a reconciling, that sort of uh, don't blame yourself for the way that it's worked out. It's worked out well. That's one of those features which we often see in that program if you've watched it. I guess in human terms, they're the stories which we tell because they're the stories that we can tell. They're the stories which we do want to appear on the screen. Too often we know that there is another reality. There is something else which talks about brokenness which is not reconciled. Relationships which are not resolved. Long-lost families which are not reunited. And so we come to a story like this and yes... We see a joyful conclusion, but at the same time, we ask ourselves, is that how life always works out? No. So does it speak into something of our brokenness in life today? I think firstly, let's very quickly, like we did last week, cover over the story. We've read one of the chapters, but we're going to continue into the next chapter and, uh, and tell how the story kind of concludes. Joseph, we left him last week. In fact, the thread of last week's stories was really uh, that continuous 
knowing, not knowing, seeing, not seeing kind of balance going on. The brothers didn't see and yet Joseph did see. He knew who they were, they didn't know who he was. And that backwards and forwards to Cain and to Egypt uh, as Joseph reinforced that there was a change in the life of his brothers and in the way that they were. And then we come to this massive section at the beginning of chapter 45 and we read this, Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants and he cried out, make everyone leave my presence. I wonder what might have happened, what everybody's thoughts were. The second most powerful man in the known world at that time is banishing everybody from his presence apart from this group of no marks, non-important people. I, I, I would imagine at that moment fear rushed through them. What is going to happen? If fear rushed through them at that point, then it was compounded when the revealing was made. Remember where we last had this family united. The last point where these brothers were together was when they threw him down a pit, then dragged him out and sold him into slavery. That's the last time that this family were knowingly together. We've been able to see the other side, haven't we? We've been able to see, if you like, from behind the curtains of, of Joseph's perspective of what was going on. As they were eating, as the brothers were eating, and Joseph was hiding himself and hiding the tears, which would have looked so out of place for a man of such power, as the emotions were welling up and yet hidden, and now they just come out. And Joseph says... Do you not see who I am? You see who I am. I'm your brother. And then they are terrified. And not surprisingly, I guess they think that this is where it all ends. This is retribution. And yet what we actually see is Joseph embracing them. We see Joseph revealing himself in compassion. He asks about his father. He promises them provision. He promises them that good things will come to them. His crying is so loud. The, the impact of this on this prominent, probably up to this point, in public terms, absolutely controlled individual. The, the kind of shock of somebody of such dignity and control loses it. We've seen it once or twice, haven't we, on TV? Where somebody of power and authority just falls apart on the screen and it, it carries such weight. And the impact of that isn't just for the brothers, but the whole of the Egyptian courts, the hierarchy in Pharaoh's palace are also aware of it and the news spreads and Pharaoh is delighted and there is provision that is made not just by Joseph but by Pharaoh as well. There is blessing that is placed on this, young, this small family, this insignificant family. At the center of world power, this group of peasants who are looking to survive leave with provision to find their 
to go back to their father, to bring their father back. We'll move now quickly into what happens as a result of them returning. We've read that Joseph, that Jacob rather, uh, whose wife was Rachel. Let me just mention that after last week when we had, uh, I just off the top of my head just had one of those mental blanks. Who's married to Who's married to Jacob? Sarah? Rebecca? No. 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 It's the person with the same name as your wife, Paul. It's Rachel. He returns and Jacob there, his wife has now died. He finds out that his beloved, seemingly dead son is alive doesn't believe it, and yet the stories are told and repeated. He's alive. There's no, no mention, no question, no discussion about, well, well, what happened back there? <laughs> He's just alive. And he goes and he returns. There's a returning, or there's a, there's a moment where, where Joseph, Jacob rather, leaves Canaan to, to go to Egypt, and, and he stops at Beersheba, and God speaks again. We're going to come to that in a few minutes. And then he arrives in Goshen, this land, this area which has been provided by not just Joseph, but by the very hierarchy that, that, that Pharaoh of Egypt has, has set aside this land for his family to settle into. And Joseph arrives in Goshen to, to arrive at this, probably this, this tent, which is what they were probably living in. He arrives with the entourage of Egypt in his chariot, it says, as he arrives to, to meet and to greet his father again. And there is that moment of embracing where the father sees once again his long lost son. And everything, it seems, is resolved. There is peace. There is reconciliation. There is incomparable joy. What an amazing finale to this story. What a great end. What a great conclusion. Just like, but with even more power, the programs that we see where families are reconciled after years of separation. This is on a historical scale. This is a reconciling which has carried through the centuries and speaks to us today, not because it was a great reconciling, even though it was a great reconciling, but it speaks because it is part of something. And we're going to look at what that something is as we work through uh, this chapter and the next couple of chapters. The first thing that we see, I think, is an incredible statement of grace. Look at verse, um, verse 4 to 7. The brothers are terrified as Joseph reveals himself to them. 
And yet Joseph said to his brothers, I love the way the narrator captures not just what he does, but something of the emotion of what he does. He says, come close to me. Come close to me. Here is the vizier of Egypt drawing close to him. People of insignificance. Everybody would have bowed. We saw how how Pharaoh elevated Joseph to the point where he was sent out into the city and everybody who saw him immediately bowed down. He was in this place of absolute authority and yet they bring him, uh, he brings them in and he brings them close to him and he says, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. What comes into sight for the brothers at this moment in time? What they realize, I guess, having already fulfilled the dreams that Joseph had prophesied early on. The dreams that made them angry. The dreams that made them furious. The dreams that wanted him to be dead. They had already fulfilled those dreams. We saw that last week. Joseph saw them bowing down in front of of him. He knew, he remembered that God had said, this is what is going to happen. Uh, But now the brothers see it. They would no doubt at this moment in time, with all of the fear, with all of the thoughts going through their minds, they would realize that now we are bowing down in front of this great power. And what that great power does to us is not place His heel on our heads and press it into the ground. He does what we don't deserve. He raises us up and He says, come close to me. Come near to me. See me not as a threat, but see me as your brother. What astounding grace. What amazing grace. What incredible grace. How has that grace worked out? How is it that Joseph is able to deliver that kind of grace, that kind of goodness into the lives of these brothers? He says, because he understands that there is something else at work. He understands that the grace that is being poured into the lives of these brothers is because God has been working out their salvation. God has been behind this. It's God who placed me here. You think that you placed me here? It is God who placed me here and it was for a good reason. It was so that you would be saved. Isn't that incredible? It was God that is the fuel. It is God that is the energy. It is God that is the motivation for the grace to be worked out. 
It is Joseph's faith in the confidence of that God, in the worked out plan of God that says, I can pour out goodness to you because it was always God's plan to save you. It was God's plan to save you. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? That when those brothers were so angry because they thought that their destiny was to bow in front of Joseph and therefore we will kill him off so that we don't have to endure that shame, they never understood that that very bowing was so that they would be saved. Grace poured out in a remarkable, amazing, incredible way. But what else does that do? What else does that speak to us today? We can walk away from that and we can say, well, that's great. That's great. That's amazing that God worked like that. Except that what God is doing once again, as He does throughout the storyline of the Bible, is He makes great stamps of message. Read this. See this. Understand this. This is how I work. Grace Grace is how I work. I give you what you don't deserve. Believing in me is not about you being good enough. It's about realizing that you are not good enough, but accepting my free grace. Accepting what I will give. Accepting what I will do. Accepting that it is not because you can scratch by your fingernails up that cliff of acceptability before God, but rather so that you can stand before me, having understood that you are failures, you are rebels, you are sinners, and I will pour out my unending grace to you. That is one of those giant stamps, those, those kind of markers in the Bible, which help us to understand from the very beginning... God is a God of grace. He's a, we, we, we sang it earlier. It is a scandal. Because what the brothers deserved was to be slaughtered in that day. In the day that they lived, what was acceptable in terms of them having tried to kill their brother is that they would pay with their blood. And yet what they actually receive is astounding goodness. Grace is one of those markers of authenticity that is continually speaking to us about how God works. And it doesn't stop, does it? At the end of the Old Testament, it carries on. In fact, God speaks to us today through, let's take just one example, Ephesians in chapter 2. It is by grace that you have been saved. It's by grace that you've been saved. If you believe in Jesus today, it's not because you've worked really hard to believe in Jesus. It's because grace has been worked out in your life. It is by grace that you have been saved. Not because you've done good things. Not because I've done good things. But because we've all failed and yet grace is still poured out. It is by grace that you've been saved. How does jo Joseph enact that grace? By faith. 
He sees that God is working. What does Ephesians say? It's by grace that you've been saved. Through faith. And this not from yourselves. So if grace is what you receive when you don't deserve it, and faith is the mechanism by which you enact that, that opening up of grace, don't believe that that faith is one of your acts of goodness. <laughs> don't believe that either. Because what he says is this. It's by grace that you've been saved and through faith. And that not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. You might be sat here thinking, can I, can I really place my trust in that God? Can I trust that He would, he would save me when, when most people know, don't know what's gone on in my life back there? I, I don't feel worthy. I don't feel good enough. Well, already grace says you are worthy and you are good enough. Not because you've achieved anything, but because you've recognized your unworthiness. You say, I see that now. And faith says, can I believe that God? And what is already happening in your life is that God is working out a gift of faith. And I would say, just keep on that journey. Just keep on that journey of placing faith day by day, day by day, in the God who is granting you that grace. It's a statement of grace. Secondly, it's a reconciled father. The joy of Jacob is a powerful, incredibly emotional picture. I'm going to read you one of the verses that uh, appears in chapter 46. God speaks to him and says to Jacob, go from Canaan, go into Egypt. We'll come on to what he says, but he concludes it with this. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Wow. You know, Jacob, he'd worked out what really matters. (laughs) He'd lived his life understanding what really matters. And what he'd understood really matters were what he had lost. What he'd spent his life without. By losing Joseph, that early stage where Joseph was more than just more than just his favored son. Joseph was the emblem. Joseph was the mark of God's blessing on this little family. Joseph was the identifier that God is working with you, Jacob. The the God who you believe in, the God who is the God of your father, Isaac, and your grandfather, Abraham, it's that God who's working out in your life. And I've proved that he's working out in your life through that promise of, of, of Joseph. And then he's lost. And God says, do you know what, Jacob? All of that pain, all of that hurt, all of that loss, it's not wasted. It's not wasted because you're going to go up to Egypt. And your life is going to end. But it's going to be your son, Joseph, who closes your eyes. 
just enter into that moment, enter into that picture. It, it concludes later on in the, in the book of Genesis where this old man, Jacob, is bringing all of his sons in one by one and he's blessing them. He knows the end is coming. But life is completed for Jacob because there by his side is Joseph. Joseph is there. The lost son is not lost. Those years of emptiness, those years of hurt, those years of grieving, those years of sadness have been turned around. And the promise that God makes to Jacob is fulfilled. He will be a blessing to you. He will close your eyes. And in those final moments of the life of Jacob, it is Joseph who is there. And he does close his eyes. As the breath leaves his body and Jacob enters into that knowing relationship with the God who he'd always loved, it is his son. His, the blessing of God that closes his eyes. And that speaks incredibly powerfully, I think, that this reconciling father picture speaks powerfully about how life works for us today. We might, we might never see the reconciled picture. We might never see the fulfillment. We might never see, in, in relationship terms, the, the equivalent of Joseph closing our eyes. That might not happen. But it's the confidence of knowing and understanding and seeing that there is a God who is sovereign over all of these events who is working in my individual life. A God who is there. Jacob now understands the God who I thought must have left me because I've lost my son was always there. He had never left him. He was just working out a far greater picture. A far greater understanding. I think it's Cory Ten Boom who uses a picture of of a tapestry and, and we look underneath at the threads and, and they're all bedraggled and then we turn it over and we see the beautiful picture. And I was thinking, that is, that is just a great picture. Then we probably need to know what tapestry is. Which, it's kind of a bit 19th century really tapestry, isn't it? So how do we, how do we make it real today? I know, pixels. Pixels is the answer. Have you ever blown, seen blown up a picture? which is so blown up that all you can see is the pixels of this picture. They're great big giant squares. They don't make sense. We live with the pixels. The pixels are the events in our lives which don't seem to make sense. We rub shoulders weaving our way between these pixels of the events of our life. These great big moments that don't seem to have any understanding relevance to our lives. They hurt. They've got sharp edges. They knock us out of balance. And yet when we stand back, when we see the great picture, they make sense. They make sense. And what we understand as God reveals His sovereign greatness throughout history by working in Egypt, 
as much as He's working in my life and your life today, that same God is working out a great, majestic, beautiful picture. And when we step back, we understand that Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 really is true. Romans 8, 28 says this, We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. That means that the interconnectedness of the pixels in my life and the interconnectedness of the pixels in your life are part of a greater picture which God is working out in the whole of this world for the good of His people. It doesn't look like good sometimes. Famine in the land does not look good. But it's good somehow. In the carnage, in the mess, it is God who is working. It is God who is not letting it go completely out of control. We often say, don't we, why did God allow famine in the land? (laughs) Without realizing, why did God bless for seven years beforehand? Actually, what this fallen world actually lives mostly with is no intervention from God, no blessing, no grace, no mercy. And yet what we see is God working out moments of mercy and moments of grace intervening. And somehow beyond my wildest understanding, beyond any of our imagination, we see a God who holds everything in this glorious, giant, non-pixelated masterpiece. And at the very center is Jesus. We also see a voice from God. I love this little section. We didn't read it. You can read it later on if you want. It's in chapter 46, next chapter on. Jacob is, Jacob's in a quandary. But the voice of God confirms the decision. Why is he in a quandary? Because he's in the land that God has promised. Canaan is the land that God has promised. And his sons have turned up from Egypt saying, leave the land that God has promised. Surely I'm supposed to stay here even though I die? Because this is the land that God has promised. How how can God engage in that situation? And he goes to this, this, we haven't got time, but we could spend an hour or talking about Beersheba. This place which is so significant. You know, long lost family, you know, and they go to, and we're going to go to a cafe which was very close to where they grew up. And they go to that cafe and it's all a brilliant kind of location of reconciling and wonder. And yet the reconciling and wonder is in Beersheba. With Jacob and the God who he loves. And God says to him, I am God, the God of your father. I am the God of your father, Jacob, don't you worry. If I was the God of your father and I'm the God of you, then I'm the God of the future as well. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. I will make you into a great nation. And I will go down to Egypt with you and I will surely bring you back again. 
this land is not forgotten, but I'm going to make you a great nation before you come back to this land. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. God spoke to him at Beersheba. It is a beautiful picture. This old man, this, this man who is now close to death, relatively speaking, God speaks to him again. God spoke to him as he left Beersheba, as a terrified youth, as he ran lonely away from his brother. And he said, I've got, you, I've got my hand on you. And now he says, go down to Egypt, Jacob. I'm going to make you a great nation. I have not forgotten the promise that I have made to you. Nothing changes. This has always been part of my plan. You see, isn't that an amazing thing? We see the Canaan. We see the moment. We see, well, it's got to be this. And yet God sees it as way more. You're not ready for Canaan yet. Because you're not a great nation yet. I've not fulfilled what I've said I would do to Abraham. Through Abraham I made a promise that you'll be a great nation. And it is in a sense, it's a great nation that finally leaves Egypt. That's another story which we might come back to. And yet what do we see is a frightened youth who God speaks to once is now an old man who God still speaks to. God speaks to him. God engages with him. But God does not leave it at that. Hebrews carries an amazing verse where it says this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors. He spoke to our ancestors. He spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. You think, wouldn't it be amazing to be alongside Jacob as God speaks in Beersheba? That must have been an amazing moment, mustn't it? We only think that's amazing because we don't realize the more amazing significance that God has spoken through His Son. He's spoken not by a voice that is distant. He's spoken by a voice that is present. His Son has spoken in this world. The issue, the challenge, the question is, are we listening to that voice that has spoken? Because that is what the whole of this story is about. God has promised to Abraham a great nation to be a witness. From nothing a great nation is born. A great nation which becomes a witness to the world. A great nation which at this moment in time is on the verge of extinction. What is at stake as Jacob is in Canaan deciding whether to leave to go to Egypt? What is at stake is you and me. It's you and me. Worshipping Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's you and me believing in Jesus of Nazareth. Why is that at stake? Because if Jacob had not left Canaan, that would be the end of this family line. And there would be no continuation. There would be no great nation. There would be no great King David. There would be no great King David's son, Jesus. There would be no worshipping of Jesus today. That's what's at stake. The gospel is at stake at this moment in time. And that's the great picture. That's the great wonder. 
That's the great, amazing significance. And yet all of the other things fall into place, don't they? They fall into place in exactly the same way. Grace. Grace. There's a moment later on. It's one of my favorite sections in the whole of the Bible. There's a moment later on where Jacob has died. And the brothers are once again terrified. Because they think, oh, well, jo- Joseph's been good to us up to now just because of Jacob. And Joseph says to them this. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. God intended it for good. Do you know what? You could take the whole of that narrative. And you could place it on the life of Jesus. You could place it on the life of Jesus. And you could place each one of us in the lives of the brothers. We could say in a sense, we are what? We are the killers of Jesus. We're the ones who deny Jesus. And yet, there is grace poured out to those who then believe. What we don't deserve, we receive. And then when we look at the cross, and we look at a a son who is slaughtered, it's what we see. We see a kind of a picture of a son that is slaughtered as Joseph's clothes are covered in blood and taken to his father. There is the father who's looking at the remnants of his son's death. And yet we see with Jesus, the father looks down not on a a fictitious representation of his son's death, but on the reality of the shedding of the blood of his only begotten son which we understand from that greater picture, God meant for good. Why? Because it looks like the Jews slaughtered Jesus. It looks like the Romans slaughtered Jesus. But behind it all is the greater purpose of a God in heaven who says, at this very moment, this is all about the saving of many. This is about the saving of many. That's what's at stake. That's what's on offer. That's the hope. That's the reality. That's the great message of the Bible. That is the grace. And we look and we say, do I look on that? And do I see a slaughtered man? Or do I see the one who becomes my hope? The only way that we believe in the hope is if we believe in not just a picture of a resurrected Joseph who looked dead and now lives, but in the reality of a Jesus who was dead and now lives. In a sense, that's what we see in Joseph, isn't it? A son who is slaughtered, who appears dead, and yet returns in great majesty and becomes the Savior through his life. And yet, it is only a shimmerer A picture, a little reflection, smoke wisping up through the stories of the Old Testament until it finds its reality in Jesus, who becomes the real Son, who is truly slaughtered, who really lives, and who works out the saving of many. And the question remains from Hebrews chapter 1, 
God has spoken in the past through those shimmerous, through those wisps of smoke, but now He has spoken through His Son, and are we listening?